0: If anybody needs a Bible, just uh, lift a hand up into the air and Stu's making his way right now. Bruce is up here in the front make sure you get a Bible so you can follow along with us in our study. And let's read from verses 4 through 8. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from Him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto Him that loved us And washed us from our sins in His own blood. And hath made us kings and priests unto God and His Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He cometh with clouds, and every eye shall see Him. And they also which pierced Him, and all kindreds of the earth shall wail because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am Alpha and Omega. The beginning and the ending, saith the Lord, which is, and which was, and which is to come, the Almighty. In our study last week, I told you that the book of Revelation breaks down into three sections. In chapter 1, verse 19, we're told what those three sections are. John writes, and he says, or Jesus tells John to write, and he says, Write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are, and the things which shall be hereafter. The things which were in the past, the things which are presently, and the things which shall be, or are yet to come, in the future. Now, I say that to you not by means of review, but rather to point out that it's obvious to us upon observing the book that the majority of the text is dedicated to the third section uh, that that it breaks down into the things which are yet to come chapters four through twenty two all deal with things that have not yet taken place, all future events. however, though the content or i 'm sorry the you know the amount of text that 's given to those things spreads out over those 19 chapters, chapter 4 through 22, yet I believe that in terms of content, all three sections are equal in size. That though there's only one chapter dedicated to the things which were, and two chapters dedicated to the things which are, and 19 chapters dedicated to the things which shall be, yet... When you look at these chapters and see what's given to us in them, you discover very quickly that they are equal in size in terms of content. Content, What they give to us, what they reveal, what they say. Chapters, chapter 1 tells us as much about Christ and what He has done as chapters 4-22 through 22 tell us of what's yet to come. And chapters 2 and 3 tell us as much about what Jesus is doing in the church historically and presently as, again, chapters 4 through the end tell us of what is yet to come. The point why I'm telling you that is not just so you can say, oh, that's a great uh, insight that you have there. No, but rather I'm telling you that so that you understand why we're not rushing through these first introductory verses of the book of Revelation. Because there's a lot here for us to see to be revealed. So don't get scared. We're not going to spend two years going through the book of Revelation taking it two verses at a clip. But rather, as we go through these first couple of chapters and we discover the things that the Lord wants to show us here, we'll take our time a bit. But once we get to chapter 4, we'll pick up the pace and you know, we'll begin taking probably a chapter per week at that time. But as we look at these verses here, these five verses in chapter 1, verses 4 through 8, John gives to us here a greeting, if you would, or a salutation, much like many of the other New Testament letters. You know, as you read the letters that Paul wrote to the churches, there's always a a small section that is somewhat of a greeting or a salutation or, if you would, kind of a cover letter, If, if he was sending it. Uh, As effects or something like that. And, And we discover four things in these five verses by way of greeting or salutation. First of all, the author. That is, from the human part. You know, who wrote these things down. Second of all, the audience or who he's addressing. Third of all, the addressee. That is, whom he is speaking for. And then finally, his agenda. What it is that he's writing about. So these four things, much like a a cover letter. And the first thing that we see right there in the very beginning of verse 1 is the author. He tells us, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia. Now we know already from the verses that we read last week that this John that's writing is the same as the author of the Gospel of John. You know, John can almost be as confusing on the male side as Mary could be on the female side. You say, well, which John is it? You know, you've John the Baptist, you've John Mark, you've the Apostle John. So, who is it? Well, this is the Apostle John. He tells us that in verse 2. He says in verse 2 that he bear record of the Word of God and of the testimony of Jesus Christ and of all the things that he saw, pointing, of course, to the Gospel that he authored. Now, there are a few things about John, the Apostle, that make him unique among the Apostles. And they lend to us some reason as to why God chose John to be the author, or the man who wrote down the things that we have here before us. You see, when Jesus walked the earth, we know from reading the Gospel accounts that there were thousands of people that flocked to him. For the purpose of being fed and seeing the miracles that he performed, the healings, the deliverances, you know, the multiplication of the loaves and the fishes. And it says that the multitudes thronged him, hoping to see the things that he was doing. But yet, of the thousands that came to see signs and wonders, there were only hundreds that were interested in hearing the things that he had to say that were attendant to His teachings, to His doctrine. And of the hundreds that were attendant upon His doctrine, there was only 70 that wanted to get involved. That said, you know, we want to serve Him, and and, and go out and further this gospel, this good news that He's giving, this message of salvation. And of those 70 that wanted to serve Him, there were only 12 That said, we have left all to follow you. Those twelve apostles that Jesus himself had called. And of those twelve, there were three that were in the inner circle with Jesus. Peter, James, and John, who were there with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. Who were there with him when he raised the young maiden from the dead. And that were with him in the garden of Gethsemane when he went there and that heaviness of the cross began to come over him. The darkness of what was about to face him. Only three in the inner circle. But of all the thousands and hundreds and seventy and twelve and three, there was only one that followed Jesus all the way to the cross. There was only one of all of those multitudes who was there as Jesus uttered those words from the cross, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And that was John. John the Apostle followed Christ all the way to the cross. You know, it's interesting that in the church today we see the same type of demographics concerning people's motivation for following Christ. There are thousands that will come when there's a buzz in the air, when there's signs, when there's Wondering when there's excitement going on. Thousands will show up. But there's only hundreds that care about the doctrine. There's only a fraction of that that will give themselves to serving Christ in some way. And even fewer that would leave all. That would forsake the comforts of their life and their security to serve Him in a broader spectrum. And even fewer than that are those that really say, I want to know Christ. I want to know Him. I want to know Him in His sufferings, as Paul said, the fellowship of His sufferings. That I might be made conformable unto the image of His death. And of those, there's even fewer that will say, I want to follow Christ all the way to take up my cross. To learn what it means to bear my cross and to follow Him, even though it means adversity, for the sake of having something of His love and of His person revealed to me in a way that only suffering can do. And I believe that it's for that reason, partially, that John was the one who was chosen to be the one that would bear this message to the church throughout all its generations. That's why John's favorite title for himself, as you read the Gospel of John, is the apostle that Jesus loved. Because he realized, as he saw Jesus hanging there on the cross, and realized why he was enduring the things that he was enduring. And that it was not for himself, but for those that were looking on. Those that were watching. It was for their sakes. And so John realized something at that point, that he loves me. And so he called himself the apostle that Jesus loved. And it's interesting that he was the last of the surviving apostles at the time that this word, this book of Revelation, was written. He's probably over 90 years old at the time of its writing. And he's the only apostle of the 12 that wasn't martyred or killed for his faith. He's the only one that died of natural causes. That's because love never fails. You know, they tried. It was the year 95 AD. And Domitian was the emperor of the Roman Empire. And much like his predecessor, Caesar Nero, he was a lunatic. And he took pleasure in killing Christians. And it happened upon an occasion that there was an uproar in the city of Ephesus and John was hauled into the Colosseum. And it wasn't lions that he would be fed to or gladiators that he would have to contend with or the guillotine that would chop off his head. But rather they boiled a cauldron of hot oil and they tried to make a Kentucky Fried Apostle. But it didn't work. John survived the cauldron of boiling oil unscathed, unharmed, according to tradition, according to history. And so not being able to kill him, they did the next best thing. They exiled him to the island of Patmos where he would be in isolation. Where he wouldn't be able to affect people with his message, with his doctrine, with the words that he spoke and the testimony that he had. But it was there on the island of Patmos that Jesus came and met with him and gave him this revelation that we have before us here. So John, the author of the book of Revelation, was exiled to Patmos where he received this revelation. John, the author of this book. Well, he goes on to address in the second part of his greeting his audience. Again, in verse 4 it says, John, to the seven churches which are In Asia. Now we know that he's speaking to literal churches. We know that because in chapters 2 and 3 there are seven letters that are addressed to these specific individual churches from Jesus himself. However, we also know that there were more than seven churches in Asia. The church of Colossae that Paul wrote the letter of Colossians to was in Asia. The church of Antioch, where Paul was when he was called by the Lord, and the Lord said, separate unto me Saul and Barnabas for the work that I have called them unto. That also is in Asia. Many of the churches that we see Paul planting as he moves through that region in the book of Acts are in the region of Asia. So why here does it just say the seven churches that were in Asia? Did God not recognize the others as legitimate churches? No, the reason why it talks of seven churches is that seven is the number of completion in the Bible, and it's speaking of the church in its entirety. That those seven churches represent the entirety of churchianity throughout the scope and spectrum of the church age. And that this letter is addressed not simply to those seven churches that existed then, but to the complete and entire church that exists throughout the church age. It's interesting, as you read those seven letters, you realize quickly that every different type of church is present and listed among those seven that are listed there. That every issue and problem, every victory and and, and glory that can be experienced by any church at any time is seen and signified and spoken of there in those seven. It's the number of completion because it speaks of the entire church itself. It's interesting, some have called the book of Revelation the book of sevens, because of the incredible frequency of times that we see the number seven showing up in the book. We see seven churches, we see seven spirits, seven candlesticks, seven stars, seven lamps, seven seals, seven horns, seven eyes, seven angels, seven trumpets, seven thunders, seven thousand. Seven heads, seven crowns, seven angels, seven plagues, seven vials, seven mountains, seven kings. All of those specific times that the number seven is mentioned throughout the book. But then also there are other groups of seven that you put together as you read the book. There are seven beatitudes. Seven times throughout Revelation that it says blessed is the one and you can go through I was tempted to write them down but I thought hey no I'll give them fodder for a personal bible study you know go through and find the beatitudes in the book of revelation seven of them there's seven years of judgments coming upon the planet there are seven divisions within the letters to the seven churches there are seven i ams of christ throughout the book of revelation There are seven doxologies in heaven, or seven times that they sing that that, that there's a breakout of praise in heaven where they cast their crowns or they come forth and express praise to the Lord at various times. Why? Why is it that the number seven is so frequent? Why is the book of Revelation referred to as the book of sevens in so many places? Well, we don't know conclusively, but one commentator said this, That although this question is not discussed explicitly in the book of Revelation itself, almost certainly one of the primary reasons is to emphasize that this is the last book of the Bible. In fact, the book closes with a grave warning against anyone who would pretend to add anything further to God's inspired word. The number seven has always been regarded as representing fullness or completion. And this is true not only in the Bible, but among almost all peoples throughout history. Seven is the lucky number, or the perfect number. And in many ways, it also demonstrates the fingerprint of God as he goes through. And he puts his seal upon these things, says that this is completion itself. But John is told to write unto the seven churches... And we see, we discover that that includes you and me also. That this letter, this book, this word, this prophecy, this vision, this glorious revelation of Jesus Christ is written personally to you and to me so that we might know Him in a fuller and richer way and that we might know what lies ahead for us in the future on earth and also in the ages to come. I also have a theory as I read this and see that it's addressed to the seven churches. That as I see that, I, I, I believe that one of the first things that will happen after the rapture of the church is that the Bible will become unavailable, by and large. That it will become a banned book, so to speak. That, that it won't be as easy as it is then, as it is for us now, to just grab a Bible and to read these things. That it's going to become hard to find those things. We don't have time to get into the reasons and all that for that, but nevertheless... John tells us that these things are written to the seven churches, the complete church to you and I as well. He moves on from there and he tells us the addressee, or who these things are from. Where did this message originate? Is it something that John just dreamed up in the senility of his old age as he was exiled there on the island of Patmos? That he had way too much free time and... Some strange cactuses to eat, and so he just kind of was, was just kind of going with whatever came into his mind. Is that what, What's the origin of this revelation? Well, he tells us where these things came from as he moves on in his greeting. He says, "To the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come." He's going to tell us three persons that all are encapsulated in the same Godhead here. He begins with the first, Him that was, that is, and which is to come. It's a direct reference to Jehovah, to the Father, to God Almighty. Immediately in the mind of the readers and also to John who's writing this, Isaiah chapter 41 verse 4. God, where God speaks of Himself and He says, "...who hath wrought and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am He." And again, Isaiah chapter 44, verse 6, "...thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God." And again, in chapter 48, verse 12 of Isaiah, he says, Hearken unto me, O Jacob, and Israel my called. I am he. I am the first. I also am the last. And here, John writes, and he says, From him which is, and which was, and which is to come, the eternal, the almighty God. Now you'll notice in all three of those verses that compound, I am, is used. You remember when Moses said, who shall I say sent me? And God said, tell them, I am hath sent me, sent you. The I am, the all sufficient one, the one who is whatever you need. That's who God is. And isn't it interesting that there are seven times throughout Scripture that there is a compound name where God says, I am, or Jehovah, it's Y-H-V-H, it's the same thing where He says, I am, and then there is another word that's placed next to it that describes who God is, and there are seven of them throughout Scripture. I I am is translated Jehovah or Yahweh. And seven times that name is used with another word next to it. The first time in Genesis chapter 22, verse 14, where Abraham says, you are Jehovah Jireh or God who is my provider or the Lord who provides God who provides my provider As Abraham realized there in that time of his tribulation as God revealed himself as the one who would become the sacrifice for sin the one who would provide the greatest need of man, Abraham says, you are God, my provider. The second is in Exodus chapter 17, when Moses and Joshua and the children of Israel were being put to the test there by the enemies of the Lord. And as God fought for Israel there and wrought a victory for his people, Moses called upon the Lord and he said, you are Jehovah Nisi, or the Lord my banner, or the Lord who defends me. God, my defense. He is God, the one who defends his people. The third time, again, in Exodus chapter 15, where he is called by himself, he says that I am the Lord, or Jehovah uh, Rapha, or the God who heals you. Jehovah Rapha. That he says, I am your healer, the one that heals you. I heal all of your diseases. Again, in Psalm chapter 23, David says, Jehovah Ra, or the Lord is my shepherd, the one who leads, the Lord who leads and directs his people. In Judges chapter 6, verse 24, Gideon calls him Jehovah Shalom, or the Lord who is my peace, the one who gives me peace. Jeremiah calls him Jehovah to Sid Canoe in Jeremiah 23, verse 6, or the Lord my righteousness, my righteousness comes from the Lord. And then in uh, Ezekiel chapter 48, verse 35, probably my favorite one where Ezekiel says that he is Jehovah Shammah or the Lord who is present with us, that the Lord is there. So God, throughout the scripture, seven times revealing himself by this compound name, Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi, Jehovah Shalom. The Lord is my provider. He's the one who defends me. He is my peace. He is my righteousness. My shepherd who leads me. The one who heals me. And the one who is ever present with me. And it is from him that we have this revelation. God, who is those things. All that he wants to be to us. He has revealed, and he says that it's from him which is, which was, and which is to come. It's from the Father. But also, not only originating in the heart of the Father, but also he goes on to say, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne. You say, oh my. (laughs) What? Now, I've heard of the Holy Ghost. And I have no problem with the Holy Spirit, but what's the deal with this seven spirits which are before His throne? Talk about confusion. Talk about misunderstanding. What does He mean by this, the seven spirits which are before His throne? Well, when you have a question about the Bible, what's the best place to look? The Bible. Right. Isaiah chapter 11 verse 2 says this. It says that the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon Him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. Seven things all used to describe the same spirit. First of all, the spirit of the Lord. It speaks of His authority. The spirit of wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and the fear of the Lord. When John writes of the seven spirits from which this message originates, he's speaking of the fullness of the Spirit's power and the Spirit's personality. That the fullness of the Spirit is behind the word that's being spoken here. So not only from the Father, not only from the Spirit, but then he goes on to say, and, verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the Son of God, And then he goes on to tell us seven things now about Jesus the Son. So, seven things about the Father, Jehovah, our God, our Provider, our Peace, our Healer, our Shepherd. Seven things about the Spirit that encapsulate His power and His personality. And now seven things that describe to us the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the One who gave Himself for our sins. From Jesus Christ, first of all, who is the faithful Witness. Jesus, the faithful witness. A witness is one who testifies to what he has seen or heard in order to establish a fact. One who testifies, and you can picture the scene as being in a courtroom, and someone stands up on the record and gives their testimony as to what they've seen or heard in order that it might go on the record and be established as fact what they are testifying to. Well, Jesus came into the world to be a witness to the world, to you and I, of the Father. Not just His existence and the fact of His reality that He is God, but also His substance. He came to be a witness to us of who God is. He came to, in a sense, show us the Father. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, the writer says that God... "...who at sundry times, or various times, and in divers manners, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son." And the literal rendering there is not that it was by the words that his Son spoke, but rather it was in his Son. That God was in Christ, revealing himself to the world... And he goes on, Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, and by whom also he made the worlds. Who? Jesus. Being the brightness of his glory, and the express image of his person. That Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. The faithful witness, not only of God's existence, but of His substance. What He was, who He was, the essence of the Father was encapsulated in Christ in a way that we can see it and perceive it and understand it and receive it. That that's what Jesus was. He was the express image of the Father. Colossians chapter 1 verse 15 says that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And in John chapter 14, verses 6 through 9, Jesus himself said these words. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by me. And if you had known me, you should have known my Father also, and from henceforth you know him, and have seen him. And Philip saith unto him, Lord, show us the Father, and it sufficeth us. And Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long a time with you? And yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, Show us the Father? Jesus was the exact representation of the Father. Well, what do we see when we look at Christ? What do we see when we look at Him? What is the Father? Who is the Father according to what we see in Jesus Christ? Well, John the Baptist had that same question. He, he was shaken. He was doubting. As he found himself there in prison and not knowing what would become of him. He sent two of his disciples to Jesus to ask the question, Are you the one that should come? Or do we look for another? And Jesus responded to these men. And he said unto them, Go your way and tell John what things you have seen and heard. How that the blind see and the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised. To the poor, the gospel is preached, and blessed is he whosoever shall not be offended in me. What do we see when we look at Jesus? Again, in John chapter 8, there was a woman. She was thrown on the temple floor early in the morning in front of Jesus in the place where he was speaking. The Pharisees bringing strong accusation against her that she was taken in the very act of adultery. And Jesus, stooping down, began to write in the dirt with his finger. And he uttered the words, He that is among you that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And from the oldest to the youngest, they all departed. And then Jesus looked at the woman and lifted her up. For the first time, looking her in the eyes, probably the first time anyone ever looked her in the eyes. And he said, Woman, where are those thine accusers? And she said, There's none, Lord. And he said, Neither do I condemn thee. Go your way and sin no more. What do we see when we look at Jesus? We see one who came to cleanse the leper, to restore health and wholeness, to bring healing to those that were broken. One who witnessed forgiveness and one who gave his life for the world. And this is who the Father is and Jesus was the representation, the faithful witness, the one who would accurately and rightly demonstrate and show who God is. That's a relief to me because sometimes I think it's on my shoulders to be the faithful witness, that the whole world and its salvation depends on my witness and how well I can represent the Father. Thank God that that's not the case. But do you know what privilege we get, church? Is that we get to bring people to the faithful witness. When people look at us and they say, those Christians, they're all hypocrites. We can say, yes, you're right. Churches, they're all corrupt and screwed up. We can say, yes, you're right. But listen, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. Do you have a problem with that? Jesus said if you're... Smitten on the right cheek turn the other cheek also do you have a problem with was there anything wrong with what jesus said because yes christians will blow the witness every time we're not the exact representation of the father but there is one who is and we have the privilege of bringing people to the one who is the faithful witness john tells us he's the faithful witness The second thing he tells us about Jesus is that he is also the first begotten of the dead. Again in verse 5. He's the first begotten of the dead. In the Garden of Eden, the Father spoke to his creation, to Adam, the one that he had made, and breathed into him the breath of life, and Adam became a living soul. And God said, in the day that you eat from the fruit of that tree, you shall surely die. And and Adam, of course, we know the story. He partook of that fruit, and thus sin entered into man. And because Adam was the first man, sin passed upon all men, and death, as a result, passed upon all men. And every generation has felt the sting of death, and the fear of death in it. But Jesus, by the power of a sinless life, and a sacrificial death, has defeated death By rising from the grave. Hebrews chapter 2 verses 14 and 15. Say it like this. For as much then as the children. That's you and me. Are partakers of flesh and blood. He himself. Jesus likewise took part of the same. That through death. He might destroy him that had the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver them. Who through fear of death. Were all their lifetime. Subject to bondage isn't it amazing that the older you get the more final things seem the more you realize that we're mortal and we're dying and that we don't last forever and the heart begins to cry out for something that lasts and something that's eternal well jesus is the one who through death broke the power of death and gives to us now eternal life he's the first begotten of the dead Through him, also number three, the third thing he tells us, is that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. He's the prince of the kings of the earth. Throughout the Old Testament, as you read through the prophets and you dig into the the things that they have to say, we catch a glimpse of this spiritual stage that's set in an invisible realm that we can't see. That there are authorities that rule over earthly events. In Isaiah chapter 14, the prophet Isaiah speaks concerning the king of Babylon. He gives this, this charge or this judgment upon the king of Babylon. And yet as you read through the text, you begin to see past the veil of what he's saying. And you realize that he's not talking to a physical being. He's not talking to a literal king that's in a palace somewhere, seated on a throne, but rather he's talking to a spiritual power and authority. In fact, he's speaking to Satan himself. He calls him Lucifer, the son of the morning. Talks about his history and how he fell, and you realize very quickly... That there's this connection, there's something going on, that there's a spiritual string attached to something going on on earth from something that's in an unseen realm, and the prophet is addressing him specifically. In Daniel chapter 10, we see Daniel praying, and he's visited by the angel Gabriel. And Gabriel comes to him and says, I've got a message for you, and I was sent to bring this message from the moment you began to pray, but I was hindered by the prince of Persia for three full weeks. And I wasn't set free from that hindrance until Michael, the archangel, came in and helped me. And now I'm here to bring you this message. And you read that and you go, whoa! Daniel had no idea that any of that was going on. that as he was praying, there was a battle that was going on in an unseen realm concerning the the bringing of this message to him. In Ephesians chapter 6, the Apostle Paul speaking to us in the context of the spiritual war that we find ourselves in. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says this to the church. He says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That there are spiritual strings attached to the deeds done on earth. And it isn't flesh and blood that we are in this fight against. It isn't that spouse that you're so aggravated with that's the problem. It isn't the job or the Democrats, you know, or something. That's not what it is. Or the Republicans, you know, tightrope, you know. That we wrestle not against flesh and blood. But it's against principalities and powers, spiritual wickedness in high places that that's where things are going on. And it is true that for the time being, Satan has dominion upon the planet. And in the lives that are unredeemed, Jesus had no problem with that when Satan made that claim in Luke chapter 4. But Paul tells us this in Colossians chapter 1 verse 16. He says that by him, Jesus, were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. That he is the originator of all of them. Whether it be the king of Babylon, Satan himself, the prince of Persia that hindered Gabriel from bringing the message, or the principalities and powers that affect us in our everyday lives. That all things were created by him. He created them. But also, Paul writes again to the Ephesians in chapter 1 verses 21 and 22, and this is the clincher. Are you ready? It says, That he, Jesus, is far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also that which is come. And he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. That not only is he the creator of them, but he is over them, high above them far above them that he is the prince of the kings of the earth that he has all power and all dominion and that there is nothing that is too hard for him to jeremiah the prophet god said i am the god of all flesh is anything too hard for me and the answer is nothing let me ask you church what has dominion over you tonight What stronghold has grabbed you and clinched you in a way that you cannot be delivered from it? The Bible says that Jesus is the prince of the kings of the earth. That there's nothing too hard. That in one word, that power can be broken within your life. The name of Jesus. The darkness flees. Jesus, he's the prince of the kings of the earth. The fourth thing that John tells us about him is that he loved us. Unto him that loved us there, again in verse 5 unto him that loved us. Now we all know John chapter 3, verse 16. We can quote it with our eyes closed. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. (laughs) Got my Awana verse, you know, or something. You know, we got those down. We know about that, the love. And we hear the word love all the time. We hear people tell us they love us. We use the word love all the time. I love you. I love that. I love my job. I love, no, I love ice cream, you know. And, and all these things, you know, that we we throw this word love around. And it's a fact that we all hunger for love. That there's this drive. There's something deep within us that longs for it. It's, you know, we, we crave that affection. We've been given a drive within us that we want to be loved. We hunger for love. And we're all used to being disappointed by it, aren't we? Those whom we hope would love us. Those whom we trust in or that that program or whatever it is that we hoped in some way would satisfy that longing. And yet we slowly through the years we build up defenses because we, we begin to question, does love really exist? Is there really such a force so powerful and so motivating and so real as love? Well, the Bible says, unto him that loved us. And the Bible says that Jesus loves us with a love that's unconditional. That it has nothing to do with what we've done. It isn't performance based. It isn't based on our appearance. That there's nothing in us that would cause Him to desire us. But the Bible says not only does He claim to have that love towards us, but He also demonstrated it. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, that God demonstrates His love towards us. And that while we were yet sinners, while we were his worst enemies, while we were throwing it in his face, he laid down his life for us. He shed his blood for the sole purpose of demonstrating to you and I that he has an unconditional love for us. He loves us unconditionally. And John goes on to tell us, that that love motivated him, and it's the fifth thing that we see about Christ, to wash us from our sins in His own blood. That's again in verse 5, to wash us from our sins in His own blood. About six months ago, someone gave us these. I don't know if you recognize these precious commodities, but these are laundry balls. And these retail for $49.95. You can get a set just like this for $49.95. You can go on the internet and you can get these wonderful uh, things. Now, let me read to you what these things do. I have uh, a, a printout here of what these incredible, magical, $50 laundry balls will do for you. First of all, the instructions. Simply place the Wonder Ball in your machine... And loosely put clothes and turn machine on using your favorite water temperature in any single of washing or any style of washing machine. Number two, when machine shuts off, take clothes out, keeping Wonder Ball in machine for next use. Good for three plus years of of use. Second of all, the physics. How does this thing work? This magical product, the Wonder Ball works through physics. The frequency-enhanced mineral blend within the ball creates an energy field when agitated in the machine. I don't know. Ooh, fumble. I want you to hear this. Can you hear that? There's water in there, okay? And that frequency-enhanced water... Releases energy when it's agitated within the washing machine. And when this energy meets with the water, the water is in its best cleaning state. It is the water that does the cleaning. No detergent needed. Mm -hmm. Now that's this one. Now these are the dryer balls. Simply place the two balls in the dryer with wet clothes, turn on the dryer, working together in balance, the balls keep your clothes separated. The nubs keep redistributing the heat, cutting drying time. Engineered for a lifetime, no fabric softeners or sheets needed. These wonderful, magical Laundry balls. Now, the claim that these people make is that the laundry ball leaves no trace of grime, sweat, or odor-causing bacteria. Linens, pillowcases, undergarments, slippers, etc. all maintain their fresh, clean feeling even after being used or worn again. Two exclamation points. And, by the way, clothes actually look bright for the first time since they were bought. Most of them years ago. And then it finishes with this incredible testimony. Who could have guessed that the most effective way to clean would be without soap? About three months ago, I said, Georgia, could you please start using detergent again? Because for $50, I mean, you could just go to Petco or your favorite pet store and buy a rubber ball that's designed for a dog and throw it in the washing machine, you know? And hey, if it's that magical, why not just put them in your pocket? You'd never have to wash your clothes again, right? (laughs) Who could have guessed that the most effective way to clean would be without soap? You know, they are right about one thing. Who would have guessed... Or who would have thought that the most powerful cleansing agent in the world would be the blood of a Galilean carpenter? He washed us in his blood? What does that mean? Acts chapter 17 verse 24 says this. It says that God made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is the Lord of heaven and earth, Dwelleth not in temples made with hands, neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth to all life and breath in all things, and that he hath made of one blood all nations of men, for to fear or I mean to dwell on all the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. Again, verse twenty six He hath made of one blood all all nations to dwell upon the earth. That you and I, though we might have different backgrounds, different race, that we've all been made of one blood. That God made man, and the day that Adam was made, he was made flesh and blood. And that in one way or another, that blood, that defiled, fallen, sin-riddled blood, was passed upon all men. And you and I are heirs of that same blood that was passed. Leviticus chapter 17 verse 11 says that the life of man is in the blood. The life is in the blood. The life is in the blood. Now, the blood of Adam was defiled, and thus that death and defilement was passed upon all. But Jesus, when he came into the world, he had a most unique and interesting type of blood. See, blood type is determined by the father's DNA. This is just basic in in everyday human reproductive systems. The, the, The blood type of a baby is determined by the father. And in vitro, when the baby is carried by the mother, the baby never receives a single drop of its mother's blood, but nutrients are passed across the placenta. A baby can have completely different blood type from its mother because the mother isn't who determines the blood type. The blood type comes from the father. Now, the meaning of this is that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he didn't have an earthly father. There was no blood type that was related to Adam that was at all placed within him. His blood type was absolutely unique, that God was his father, and then And he was therefore the first man since Adam to be born with clean blood. Blood that wasn't defiled by sin. Now Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 tells us this. It says that Jesus was tempted in all points like as we are, yet without sin. That that blood, though it was clean at its initial onset, was tested. That every type of defilement and sin was thrown at it, seeking to defile it, or in some way corrupt it, or make it incapable of cleaning or being clean. And yet, because he was without sin, his blood successfully defeated all potential pollutants. And thus, it's inoculated against every form of sin. It is absolutely pure. It's the purest and cleanest substance in all of the universe because it has power not only against sin, but it can destroy sin. It has the power to cleanse, and it has the power to vaccinate or inoculate against it. That's why Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 53 through 56, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Except ye eat the flesh of the Son of Man, and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoso eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. And he that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me, and I in him. He said that except you eat the flesh and drink the blood of the Son of Man, you have no life in you. Now, think about what that did to those that were listening. what drink his blood? What did he what is he propagating? What is this religion, these teachings, this doctrine that he 's giving they didn 't understand the life is in the blood. His blood was pure, his blood was clean. it had power to cleanse and power to seal against the infective powers of sin. That's why at the communion table, Jesus looked across right before he would go to the cross at his disciples and he would say, with desire, have I desired to eat this Passover with you. And it tells us that in the course of that meal that he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the New Testament, the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. And then he did something incredible. He passed it across the table and he said, drink ye all of it. Drink it, take it, receive it, be cleansed by it, be washed, be inoculated, be vaccinated, be empowered over the power of this darkness and this sin. Be forgiven and saved, be set free, be cleansed. He offered the cup to his disciples. He said, this is what I have done for you. It's being shed for you. But in the process, he had to take a cup himself. See, you can't give a cup away without receiving one. And that's why just a few hours later, Jesus, in agony in the garden, would cry out. And he'd say, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. And three times Jesus prayed, let this cup pass from me. Let me ask you, what cup was it that Jesus didn't want to drink? It was yours. It was the cup that was filled with the dregs of sin. The defilement of all filth, the disease, the loathsome bitterness of sin, the hatred and murder, the selfishness, the self serving and self seeking, the glory of man, all that defiles and oppresses men, it was all in that cup, that bitter drink. And as Jesus extended and handed the cup of forgiveness to his disciples, he took to himself the cup. That you and I filled with our transgression and sin. And he willingly traded cups with you because he loved you. Brad's going to come and we're going to close. Because we're out of time. But as we do, maybe you're here tonight and you've never been washed by this blood. This most powerful cleansing agent that's ever been. Jesus tonight holds out his cup to you. And the same offer, the same forgiveness, the same cleansing that He held out to His disciples there that night when He said, this is the cup of the New Testament in my blood. This blood that has power to forgive, that has power to set you free, that has power to save you and bring you back into a right relationship with God. He offers it and He says, I will give this cup to you. But it only comes on one condition. You have to release your cup to Him. And maybe you're here tonight and you've never done that. You've never said, Jesus, my cup is so full of this loathsome bitterness. My cup is so full of iniquity and the dregs of sin and the passions of lusts and all the rest that have defiled and tripped up my way and defiled my thoughts and my mind and keep me on this path of selfishness and away from you. And tonight the offer stands for you that as you are here before the Lord Jesus himself, And he's here present in this room and he offers that cup to you and he says, drink of the cup of my salvation. Be cleansed by the power of my blood. And I offer you that opportunity to say, Jesus, I want to be saved. I know that you're coming soon. I never heard these things about you, that you are my peace and you're my righteousness, that you're my shepherd, the one who leads me. That you're the one who heals and the one who'll be with me and guide me every day of my life. That it's your spirit that gives me counsel and wisdom and might. And it's you that gives me the fear of the Lord. That I can carry with me the authority of the Almighty by the power of your spirit. I never knew this about you, Jesus. That you are high above all principalities and powers. And that you gave yourself for me so that I might be your bride. Your precious, your beloved. Will you come to Christ tonight? Is there anyone here as we close? And you've never received Christ. But tonight the Holy Spirit of God is knocking on your heart. You feel the strings of your life being pulled. You feel the love of God pressing against you. And he says, will you come to me and be set free? Will you come to me and be saved? As Brad just strums the guitar and invites you, if you're here and you want to accept and receive Christ, just lift your hand where you're seated right now. Say, I want Christ in my life. I want to know this Savior. I want to know this grace, this forgiveness. Is there anyone here as we close? You would say, yes, I'm ready. He's been knocking. Things have been happening. I know that he's brought me here tonight for such a time as this. Is there anyone here? Maybe you're here tonight and you need to be cleansed. You need to be washed. Sin has grabbed a stronghold within your life. Just like a virus that might get into your system. Sin is in some way, some element, has grabbed a hold. Well, listen, the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses you from all sin. And the Bible says that if we confess our sins, that he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And maybe you're here tonight and you know there's just been this thing that started off as this innocent little passion, but yet it's grabbed a hold of you and now you feel it's a stronghold within your life. Listen, there's one word, one word between you and victory. It's Jesus. Will you call out on Jesus tonight and be free? Will you call out? As we stand and worship the Lord, I invite you to call out in the name of Jesus. Lord, reveal yourself to me. Show yourself to me that you might be forgiven and free. You might know him in a real and living way. Let's all stand together.
1: I'm giving you my heart and all that is within I lay it all down For the sake of you, my King I'm giving you my dreams I'm laying down my right I'm given up my pride for the promise of new life, and I surrender all to you, all to you. Cross and all the world holds oh dear, I count it all at loss for the sake of knowing you the glory of your name to know the lasting joy, even sharing in your pain and I... All to you All to you
0: our prayer this evening, Lord, that we just lay it all down at your feet. And Father, we thank you so much that you are that faithful witness, never to leave us, never to forsake us, that you're the author and finisher of our faith, Lord. The work that you began in each and every one of us, your promises, you will finish it. So Lord, I pray you bless your people tonight, bless their journeys home, Lord, keep them safe, Lord. And Lord, we just... Again, we look to your soon coming and our prayer is Maranatha. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come quickly. We pray this in Jesus name. God bless you this evening. Say hi to somebody before you go.